0: You're listening to In Technology, your source for trends about security, sustainability, and technology. Welcome to In Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Camille Moorhart, and I'm very happy to have a conversation today with Ashwin Kamaraju about data security. He is Global Vice President at Talus of Engineering and Cloud Operations. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ashwin.
1: Thank you, Camille. Pleasure to be here. Look forward to having a great conversation.
0: Data security and identity, huge topic. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to just have you reflect a little bit (laughs) in a broader sense. You've been in this space for a while, looking at the evolution of this space and general awareness by the public a little bit more about it. What is Ashwin's take on where this is headed and any concerns that you have kind of on a personal level for the direction things are moving globally?
1: I have to take my crystal ball, right? But uh, <laughs> broadly speaking, I think the several big trends that are at play, data privacy, data security, sovereignty requirements, consumer privacy is extremely important and Data residency is extremely important. Many of the countries in the world are having their own set of data sovereignty requirements and there are new regulations coming every day. To comply with those is um, very important for a lot of the enterprises. Otherwise, the penalties are very steep. That's also shaping technology and how we preserve the confidentiality, integrity, residency of the data in terms of identities themselves i think we're evolving we had the centralized identity management right there's a central server you have your passwords and usernames there and move to federated models where you use single sign-ons and you authenticate to a number of applications and and we're moving to decentralized identification digital sovereign identities where you the individual are the one that has your own identity there's a issuing party like a government and there's a verifier that the credential you present is indeed true and it is who you are but we're moving into that world of decentralized uh, digital sovereign identities right. so that using these ways of you know identifying yourself are going to be ways of the past right so i think that's a big trend that's uh, happening on a more near-term basis, I think we all know how painful passwords are, right? To remember those or use a password manager and all that stuff. So we are definitely evolving faster towards what is known as pass keys, which is you don't have to provide passwords at all. You know, We can start using cryptographic tokens, which are pass keys. So that's a huge pain point that we can address. And I think Apple, Google are moving towards their apps and their websites going towards uh, pass keys. So that's a, a big trend. And I think AI, I would be remiss if I didn't mention AI and generative AI and all that's happening there. But from a security point of view, I think the practitioners have to include these AI platforms into their threat landscape because there are new threats that come from that, right? Whether it's Data poisoning, for example, cause the data on which you're training your models to be poisoned and introduce all kinds of biases there. So protecting your data is once again very important. And that's a new emerging threat. Model stealing is is another one where the models themselves are stolen and perverted for nefarious reasons. So that becomes another threat vector, you know, hallucinations and how do you prevent some Bad actor causing these models to have more hallucinations? What are the kind of guardrails you must have in place to prevent that? Prompt engineering. I mean, there's so many new threats coming in the Mm -hmm. context of AI Mm -hmm. and AI models, and enterprises and individuals have to have a lot of policy and framework in place to model these new threat vectors that's uh, emerging as a result of AI. And of course, the next Big one is the quantum computing. I don't know when those become commercially viable, but it is believed that sovereign nations have access to whatever is available today. And there are also a reason to be concerned about that the sovereign nations may be siphoning all the data now so that they can decrypt it or use it when quantum computers are available in the future. So how do you Protect the data using proper encryption techniques, using quantum-resistant algorithms becomes an important element and an important threat as well.
0: I'm not sure that most people think of all of the components of data security that, say, you would be thinking about or other enterprises would be thinking about when they're collecting large quantities of data and managing it. So what are the components of data security and protecting data?
1: Sure. I think first, we all realize that data is the most important asset that we have, whether it's personal or in the enterprise or anywhere for that matter, right? Data is important to be protected from any number of breaches and attacks and threats uh, that are just increasing uh, on a day-to-day basis or a year-to-year basis. So there are several ways we need to secure the data one aspect is in terms of the integrity confidentiality of the data some aspects of it are really from a regulatory compliance perspective some of it is really from an access perspective and coming down a level deeper into what that means for the different types of technology first and foremost is really controlling access you really have to operate on the principles of zero trust or least access privileges and tighten the access only to the persons who need to have access to that data and there are a number of ways to do this you have identity and access management digital identities and also the level of privileges that must be granted to provide access to that data read only or for read once or read and write all those things come into play. And then we need to have some controls in place to allow exfiltration of that data, right? So we need to prevent leakage of the data into the wrong hands. The next is really to secure the data. To secure the data, we need to encrypt it. And encryption is required for many of the regulatory compliance requirements. And in Doing so, we must do it in a very performant way. Encryption has some computational overhead. We cannot let applications incur more latency or performance penalties just because the data has to be decrypted for its use. And when you think about encryption, key management is hand in glove with encryption because you need an encryption key to encrypt the data. And typically, what happens in the enterprise is because Almost every enterprise, either hardware systems or software systems, they all offer encryption capabilities. But what happens is when you go into a large enterprise and you have a sprawl of these assets, the encryption key management becomes a nightmare because it all gets siloed. And it's very difficult. And you lose a key, you're toast, right? You can never recover that data. The fidelity of the key is also important. How good a quality is that key generated from? So entropy becomes very important. A high entropy, highly trusted systems generate high fidelity keys, which cannot be hacked by any other malware. So, first step is centralized key management, and it breaks the silos when you do that because you treat all of your encryption. Endpoints through a centralized key management policy. And that lets you have proper governance around your data assets and encrypt with proper policies. You can actually rotate the keys. That's a good practice so that you don't have the same keys in perpetuity. You can report on those keys for the auditors and show that you're in compliance from a regulatory perspective, right? So centralized key management is extremely important regardless of the various endpoints and various uh, encryption entities in the ecosystem.
0: And so full disclosure on that, you offer a product line that offers centralized key management. So you're sort of describing why this is important.
1: Correct. It's the CypherDress data security platform through which we offer both key management as well as endpoint encryption capabilities.
0: I know there's no such thing as a typical enterprise, but how many keys are we talking about here? Is it like a a couple dozen or like millions?
1: Uh, Very good question. It actually ranges, depends on what is the use case, but it can run in the thousands to very few. I know of large companies who have deployed this at scale in thousands of endpoints being encrypted, but they have a very simple policy and the policy has only one encryption key, and they rotate it, and they keep it very simple. Yet, they meet all of the regulatory requirements. On the other hand, I'm aware of a sprawl of applications. Take a bank application or whatever it is, they all want to have isolation and have a different key for complete protection. If they deploy a 1,000 apps, they need 1,000 different keys. In addition to the number of keys, I think to be able to serve The requests for keys to be exchanged or transmitted to the application is an important aspect as well.
0: You're sort of getting to, if you have a single policy on all of your data that you're collecting or storing or processing, then you could get away with as few as one keys. But if you have multiple different applications that are processing different types of data, then you may even want to do a different key for every application.
1: Correct. Different key or different policy. If I may, right, I touched briefly upon the fidelity of the key and we talk about what is known as the root of trust. So hardware security modules are typically HSMs, as they call it, are entities that provide not only secure computing environments, but they also generate the keys for use in all of these applications. And why is that key generation so important? Because if you go to a typical operating system, let's pick Linux, and you say, hey, generate a key, it has an API that offers that. And if you do that, or any of the open source libraries, crypto libraries that you use, they typically use pseudo-random number generation to generate the key. And the strength or the fidelity of that key is weak in the sense it could be more easily hacked. So somebody could actually crack that key and be able to get to your data and be able to decrypt it. On the other hand, uh, one of the roles these hardware security modules provide is to have a good source of entropy. And entropy is just basically random noise. And that entropy results in the generation of a very strong key. The strength of that key is very secure and it can't easily be computed. That's one function. And then the root of trust, is that's where it all begins for the entire world of all the digital transactions that we do. Creation of that key or the master key that is used in your public key cryptography or for your data encryption, that forms the root of trust for the entire ecosystem that we live in today. That's a very important element.
0: Yeah. In fact, I wonder if we could just take a moment and you can explain public key encryption, basically the the infrastructure that everything is built on, <laughs> including the internet yeah, and right. protection of all data and how we have public and private keys. And what are those and what does that mean? Because we're talking about how to manage them and store them and access them and keep them safe. And we'll talk more about that, but what are they?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a huge... Entrenched and very widely, vastly deployed ecosystem. That's the public key cryptography, PKI, as we call it. So essentially it, it consists of a public key and a private key. The initiator of a transaction has a private key and the other party has the public key to which they apply to the encrypted message or data to uh, decode it or decrypt it. And It starts with actually creating that asymmetric keys, and usually, those keys are created in a hardware security module. Then, they sort of become the certificates that you use in all of our digital transactions today. Uh, Ecosystem that starts all the way from the root of trust, where the asymmetric keys are generated for use in public key cryptography. the whole ecosystem of certificate management that is derived based on these asymmetric key pairs and how you store them, how you do the lifecycle management, when do those certificates expire, when do they have to be renewed, are the certificates to be trusted. So there's a whole economy around that PKI, public key cryptography.
0: Can you tell us about threats in this space, cyber threats, I think we've probably heard of ransomware. What other kinds of threats and are there new things emerging that we need to be careful about?
1: Broadly speaking, I don't think the threats have changed that much over uh, the past few years. However, I think the sophistication of those threats has become much more elegant and much more hard to detect and thwart, right? So it's always a game between the good guys and the bad guys, right? So how do we stay one step ahead of all these bad actors trying to infiltrate our systems and attack it? As I mentioned about the strength of the encryption keys, even in public key cryptography or your symmetric key encryption for data security or encrypting your data, you know it starts with making sure that the key strength is the highest possible so that it can't easily be hacked and compromised, right? So choosing the strongest strength of your key is an important uh, element. That's all in the realm of the keys when it comes to the choice of algorithms and the key strengths in trying to make sure that that's not an area of vulnerability. But in terms of all these breaches, it all starts with a compromised credential. So making sure, at the minimum, that you have multi-factor authentication in accessing any of the infrastructure is absolutely critical because time and again, even for any number of years, we see that, hey, I only use a name password-based credential system here in place to access my corporate data or other assets. Without a second factor or a third factor of authentication, that's a big area of exposure and vulnerability. The other thing is, Quantum computing, we are preparing for it in the sense some of these public key cryptography is deemed to be more easily attacked or compromised if you have very powerful quantum computers. So how do you future-proof against the advent of quantum computing? So for that, you know, a lot of effort has, under- has been underway to Introduce the post quantum cryptography and offer new algorithms that are quantum resistant.
0: So, Ashwin, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about privacy with respect to data. And then, if you could also just touch a little bit on artificial intelligence.
1: Stepping back a bit, what we see from an overall landscape of how we are operating our businesses worldwide, you'll see more requirements for sovereignty data sovereignty is very important i mean it started in the european union with the gdpr but now just about every country in every continent has its own set of requirements and that is driving a lot of the requirements in terms of applications data residency who are the controllers who are the processors who has access and how do you prove That your data is residing in the sovereign nation where it's being processed, right? And addressing the data privacy of the end customer. So that's a big, big application. And to that extent, even if a lot of the workloads are moving to the cloud, however, there's a lack of trust and lack of separation of duties when it comes to relying 100% on the cloud service provider's key management systems. So it's very easy for me to move to a cloud service provider A and say, hey, my workload is here. They offer encryption capabilities. They offer a key manager. I can get the key from their encryption data, and I'm all good. But that doesn't quite address the sovereignty requirements, or the most important question that needs to be asked is, Who is the custodian of that key? So it's always the customer that has to be the custodian of that key. In order to address that, actually, we, in collaboration with the hyperscalers, have worked on some solutions. These are paradigms like bring your own key, right? So if you happen to have a key that's generated by a key manager on your enterprise on-prem infrastructure, you could actually opt To take that key to the cloud and use it for encrypting and decrypting the workloads in the cloud. And there is host your own key paradigm where the key never even leaves the customer premise. And any of these transactions that are happening in the cloud, there's a call back into the customer infrastructure or key manager where the encryption and decryption happens. So those are important tenets and. I'd be remiss if I don't mention that we always had encryption of data at rest and we always had encryption of data in motion. But the next frontier really is encryption in use. So, this is becoming important for a whole class of applications like multi party collaboration or even in areas of AI and how you actually develop foundation models based on data from multiple parties, right? you take those foundation models, you train them, and you have a model garden or something like that, that multiple parties can use those foundation models and enhance it further for their own custom deployment. So these are all new applications where you need confidentiality of the data in use and you have to preserve the confidentiality of that data then you're able to do that today with some foundational technologies available from the chip vendors like Intel, the Intel TDX and the SGX preceding that. And being able to offer end-to-end encryption from storage all the way to in-use is a whole new paradigm that's developing there. And, and that's the broader area and topic of confidential computing.
0: Right. And then let's talk a little bit about how processing of data or data compute, inferencing, et cetera, can be done closer to the edge or at the edge, depending on who you're talking to, whatever the edge means. (laughs) Um, And when we're having data being generated at the edge and processed near real time to a degree... Like just to give a really basic example, if you have security footage or something on a camera, um, you don't want to send necessarily all of that data all the time back to a central cloud. You might do some processing, and then if there's motion showing up or a problem, then you would sort of record that and send it up to the cloud. You might do some basic processing. And then another thing that we're sort of talking about now, as more and more things are generated even synthetically or generated by AI do we all have an ability to sort of watermark that or determine the provenance of that data? And are these kinds of things like that processing at the edge, or even the sort of stamping and provenance marking of data, things that are going to fundamentally change the infrastructure of everything you've been describing? Or does this infrastructure just kind of evolve? I don't understand if there's like a fundamental difference there, or if we just keep moving.
1: Edge computing is definitely an important computational shift, but fundamentally, some of the secure elements and how you secure the data, whether it is at rest and the edge or it's in motion or it's in use, the fundamental tenets don't change. What changes is the need to be able to provide or provision the keys and, and be able to have those policies Seamlessly applied wherever the compute is happening. And the transportability of those policies and keys across those different ecosystems is also very important from a customer experience perspective. So we need to provide the security and the trust. And we also must be able to provide the simplified user experience so that we can't make it very different and complex, right? Oh, if you're running on the edge, these are the set of keys and policies. And, and by the way, you can't take that data in any form and move it to the cloud, and you have a different set of rules and policies. So if you're able to solve that through simplified management with key security tenets, then you've accomplished a lot. Now, you talked a little bit about watermarking. Now, that's a whole different area of science. There's a lot of active research in that today and I think even the U.S. government, EU, are looking at it very closely because there's a lot of cause for concern there because of disinformation. The authenticity of the image is important. But from a data security perspective, we can only say that that data is used in a trusted environment by only the authorized applications and accessible only to authorized users we guaranteed that aspect of that security but how do you actually watermark the data that's up to the application
0: i think my only lingering question there then would be access or view of let's say just a verification that say something is generated by the person that it's claiming to have been generated by this is actually a real video we know you know <laughs> we yeah. sort of time stamped it and location stamped it or something as opposed to is generated by an AI model. And I think what you've kind of been describing the way that so far infrastructure has been set up is there would be like an enterprise that's kind of storing its keys or employing key management service in, in the enterprise would be the one to decrypt and look at the data. And I'm wondering if there might be in the future, a need for a much more distributed ability to view, ah, yes, I maybe don't have access to the key, but I have an ability to view that a key has verified that this piece of information is what it says it is. So that would be like a consumer, almost an end user, yeah. uh, access yeah. to see that verification. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right, right. is that yeah, Would yeah. that require a shift in, in the way things are structured? Uh,
1: yes, it does. I, again, I would say the shift has to be done in a way that doesn't require a huge burden on applications, right? Because the applications tend to lag the changes in the basic computing paradigms, right? Because to write to new APIs or to model new paradigms or refactor the code is not going to be easy. It takes years. I think the real new paradigm that comes into play is really the attestation all the way from the application to the silicon and that says hey you are running in a trusted environment we attest that this trusted execution environment is indeed valid and trustworthy and that goes all the way up the stack from the silicon to the data that the application is processing and and the keys are indeed generated by a trusted source that can validate that yes I'm the issuer of that key, and it's to be trusted. And then the application itself that is running more in a trusted environment, that guarantees that level of fidelity and the trustworthiness. And it's also a separation of roles and duties here, right? It's not a key that you don't know who provisioned that or how it's secured or how it's stored, but it is a key that you generated and you provisioned for that application to use and no one else
0: as we experience the shift toward digital identities, I mean, it used to be, don't believe everything you read. Now it's like, don't believe everything you see, right? (laughs) And uh, moving toward a digital identity because it's not enough just to look at my face or hear my voice anymore to know whether it's me. Do we run any risk in consolidating control of access to things like money or information? credit, etc. when we migrate to digital identity?
1: I think there's always a risk. The question is, is it an acceptable risk for a greater benefit, right? I think with so many disparate identity systems, there's a bigger risk that somebody can steal your identity, right? And cause irreparable harm with so much more cryptography based approaches to digital sovereign identities i would say it's uh far more secure and actually it's a combination of biometrics and so many other things that makes it more relevant in the world we live in in terms of fraud and identity theft and everything else that's happening there but we won't go turn a switch on and say okay tomorrow it's all digital identities right i think it's a slow transition, as always, some of these big paradigm shifts. And there's a lot of learning to do as we go along, right? I mean, your real IDs are going to be a big test. And we still haven't converted all of our driver's licenses in all of the states to real IDs, but that's a requirement. So that'll be something we, we learn from. I would say some countries, maybe it's China or India, they have, they're so further along in actually having these uh, digital identities, right? I mean, in India, you have Aadhaar, which is a central government issued ID that's really driving the entire shift to a cashless digital economy. I would say to date, they're successful and they're able to reach huge population, hundreds of millions of people. And there are not much reports of any breaches or challenges with that. So all of these feed into our learning. I mean, as is the case with any big technology shifts, right? Whether it's driverless cars or robo-taxis or any of the early experiments in flights, we all will have some risks along the way, but it's a feedback system in which we learn and improve and evolve.
0: Ashwin Kamaraju, Global Vice President, Engineering and Cloud Operations at TALIS. Thank you so much for your insight today around data security and its trends. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Camille. It was a pleasure.
0: Stay tuned for the next episode of In Technology. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on X to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.